Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is from UCI's School of Medicine in the Department of Molecular Biology and Biochemistry, Professor Michael Buckmeyer. He is also an Associate Director of the Center for Viral Research, and he's here to talk to us today about COVID-19. Welcome, Dr. Buckmeyer. How are you today? I'm fine. Great. Good to hear. Well, why don't we just jump right into it? Is Are you surprised that this pandemic has hit? Is, is this something that you have thought of as it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when? Can you give us a little bit of a sense of that? There have been a number of warnings over the past 10 years or more. Really, it's been 17 years since SARS-1. And beginning with SARS-1, we began looking, not we, my lab, but the field in general, began looking very hard at coronaviruses that were present in bats in Asia and surprisingly found a very large number. Estimates of up to 160 different species have been identified of coronaviruses. Mm. Uh, It's been published in a number of papers. Those papers have been published in good journals, so they should have been been recognized. And uh, in spite of that, uh, the national effort to detect emerging pathogens was discontinued last September and left a huge hole in our visibility, uh, really, to detect these kinds of incoming pathogens. The virus that causes this infection is very similar, probably on the order of 90% homology, the genomic level. In other words, nucleic acid sequence is about 90% conserved with the previous SARS virus that hit Asia in uh, 2002-2003. Professor, could you just repeat what you just said, maybe just slightly slower, so we can all get it. (laughs) Sure. Since the last SARS epidemic, we have been watching very carefully what's happening in Asia in terms of of the uh, bats in Asia and the viruses that they carry. Mm. Bats are known to be a major host of a number of emerging pathogens, not just coronaviruses. Mm. But because of some unique uh, deficiencies in their immune system, they're able to harbor these infections without ill effect on their own account. They're kind of a flying test tube, really, if you will. Wow. Uh, There have been identified up to uh, uh, about 160 different species of coronavirus that have been identified in these bats. And many of them are very similar to SARS coronavirus, the virus which caused the infection in 2002-2003. And so we've been vigilant about that. There have been a number of papers published. There are four or five that really stand out that have predicted that this epidemic would occur. These were published largely between 2007 and 2015. So we've had plenty of time to think about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, In spite of that, and in spite of the knowledge of other pathogens as well, the PREDICT program, which was a program mounted by the federal government uh, looking for pathogens that were likely to cause endemic or enzootic disease around the world, was discontinued last September, Mm. uh, leaving a big hole, really, in our ability to detect and uh, follow up on these agents. Mm. So, no, I'm not surprised. Yeah. And when it was discontinued, was that a presidential decision? That was a decision that came down. Let's just say that was a, a decision that came down from the executive branch, and it involved a saving of about $200 million a year. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, 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 you know, and weigh that against the economic cost of this epidemic, not right. to mention the human cost. Right. So it's interesting. It, it, are bats 
you know, we're always going back to bats, 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 bats. Are there other animals that have similar issues? Bats are surprisingly present in a number of these cases. However, influenza, for example, is carried by waterfowl. And waterfowl, of course, can fly and go from really across oceans, you know, particularly the Bering Strait, from Asia to North America. And so part of the yearly cycle of influenza that we see is because of the mobility of avian species, uh, bats, geese, uh, drakes, birds that can fly. Mm. So it isn't only bats, but each infection has a unique characteristic in its reservoir host. In the case of bats, if you do salivary or fecal samples from bats, you find the virus largely in fecal samples. If you look at ducks and geese for influenza, you find the ducks and geese will shed virus in feces. Why is it that they're not respiratory infections? Well, simple uh, selection would indicate that if an animal were infected, for example, a goose or a duck, it wouldn't be able to fly the long distance if its respiratory capacity were, were compromised. So mm-hmm. nature selects against those who were infected in the lungs. So the, the virus adapts in that sense and is forced to replicate only in the gut. And so you have really a trail as these ducks fly and land and fly and land and start stop in ponds and, you know, in other water courses. And so you have the ability to, to leave that trail of virus as you travel. In the case mm-hmm. of bats, you know, bats can spread the virus by a number of ways. If you look at, for example, in Africa, Ebola, we think that it's fruit bats that carry Ebola virus. And what happens is that they will contaminate fruit while it hangs on the trees and they'll contaminate it perhaps with feces and urine. And then if individuals eat that fruit, they'll become contaminated. Now that's Mm. one speculation. If we look at the interface between man and animal, in the case of the live animal markets in China, we think what happens is that the bat will infect other animals that are in the live animal markets. There are bats in the live animal markets, but the bat will infect other animals in the market. Those other animals, in the case of SARS, the palm civet was the, the intermediate host will be infected and then pass that infection on to humans. Mm. So it can be a simple life cycle directly spread from bat to human, or it can be a more complex life cycle from bat to an intermediate host to human. Why are there bats in markets? Are they eating them or is it some type of ritual or what? I don't pretend to be an expert on uh, culinary habits in China. Mm. Uh, I understand that they are considered a delicacy. Mm. I'll leave it at that. I think if you ask someone who is familiar with Chinese culture, they could give you a better answer. Gotcha. They certainly are there. Yeah. It's still to be determined whether uh, humans get it directly from a bat or if there's an intermediate host. Yeah, I think that in this particular case, we haven't yet tracked down the source of the virus in the initial human infections. Mm. We really don't know Mm. uh, definitively. That will come out. You know, these kinds of, of incidents are much like a, a train wreck. You know, you, you have a lot of damage, a lot of carnage, expensive outcome. And after two or three years of study, you figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to do in real time. Gotcha. Because you're responding to the infection. Understood. Are you familiar with the term zoonotic spillovers? Can you shed some light on us? You know, as I've been doing research, I I see that term. Yeah. Zoonoses are persistent infections in animals. 
well, any kind of infection in animals, but in this case, the, the applicable one would be persistent infections. In other words, where the animal is the reservoir. A zoonotic spillover refers to this exact process of infection spilling over from the animal to the human. Mm. Uh, and that can happen through an intermediate. In this case, uh, in the case of SARS, it happened through the palm civet. Uh, so it went from animal to animal, and then it went from animal to human. So it was a, a two-step process. In this case, we don't know yet. Obviously, that's important to sort out, but it's also important to regulate these markets and put things in conditions where there isn't exchange among animals. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the case in SARS, as it's been described to me, is that you had animal markets where you had the smallest animals on the top, the next ones down were the medium-sized animals, and the largest animals on the bottom in the, mm-hmm. on the shelving. Mm. And so, uh, you know, we have a saying that, that uh, the excrement flows downhill. Uh, mm. And if that's the case, that would be fairly easy to accommodate uh, the spread from bat to palm civet, uh, which would be on a lower tier. But I don't, I don't think that kind of, of speculation is, is really that helpful. We just know that the two animals were both housed in the market. Boy, this uh, COVID-19 crisis is evolved so quickly. Uh, has it evolved kind of like you would have anticipated or have you been surprised? Uh, the, one, the one aspect of this that has been surprising to me is the, the speed at which the virus is able to move from host to host. You know, there are a number of examples of uh, the church in, in Korea, for example, or the choir up in Washington State, where people have gotten together for a relatively short period of time, and there's been ex- evidence of extensive spread among, among the individuals involved, which tells you that it really is spread via either an aerosol or a droplet spread, uh, because they're breathing common air. They're not sharing anything else. And it certainly is aerosol. Uh, it's certainly not fecal oral or anything like that would be. That would be polio virus, for example. So, mm. yeah, it's, it's, it surprised me in the spread that, it's, that it has uh, shown. Mm. Other features of it, you know, the, the uh, high virulence in adults and the elderly is, is something we saw before. In SARS, 50% of the people over uh, 50 were infected and, and uh, could die, and a much lower percentage of the younger, younger individuals. So uh, the other thing that I think we have to worry about is that, again, taking the model from SARS, about half of the deaths were in healthcare responders, doctors, nurses, people working in the hospital setting, working in the clinic setting. Wow. Wow. We're asking an awful lot of our, of our physicians, you know, to remain in the hospital, you know, and, and treat as many people as we can. Right. That brings us to masks. Can you please give us your sense of recently now they're saying to wear masks all the time i understand is that, is that your understanding also uh that's my understanding the mask is an interesting subject because the amount of data that we have that really suggests that a mask is protective is pretty thin uh, however the amount of anecdotal data that we have it varies from site to site and i think the position that i would take on this is that if you feel more comfortable if you feel like you're gaining some protection from a mask go ahead and use it it doesn't necessarily guarantee that it will provide more protection but if you're in a, a, a more relaxed state when you're shopping or doing anything around other individuals you're less likely to be, put yourself in a position where where you're going to be contaminated 
Some of the more extreme projections, uh, things like contaminated air, you know, at a distance of 30 meters, I think those are a little bit hard to swallow. However, if you think about what the conditions are outdoors, you know, if you have six feet of separation, two meters of separation, and the wind is blowing, that's very different from two meters in a, in a closed room. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have a dilution factor that you have to be uh, uh, cognizant of as well. And, and a dilution factor in a very small room, say an office, is much different than it would be outdoors. And dilution is our best friend. UV light is also very effective at killing viruses. And UV light outdoors would shorten the lifespan of the virus, certainly on surfaces and, and uh, on contaminated skin. You know, so that's something to keep in mind as well. Uh, in terms of, let's say you just you made a homemade mask out of you know just fabric. Can it just not be anything but helpful? I mean, I, pardon no, me. It won't be helpful. Are you questioning that it would help, or is it really these micro droplets are really not going to be stopped at, at, at all? Droplets would be reduced even by a cloth mask. These are not HEPA filtered masks. You know, a HEPA filter would prohibit anything from from a half micron uh, on, you know, in size uh, and larger. But if we look at these masks in terms of what they do, they will stop droplets that might be emitted in speech or coughing or whatever. And so you might get partial protection if the droplet is the source of infection. But you're protecting the other individual there. Will it protect you against someone else? I think it's debatable. It depends on what the status of the patient is. You know, if they have a dry cough and they continue to cough, it's possible that they can get through the mask. On the other hand, if someone sneezes or coughs into the mask and emits droplets, then some of that will be stopped. I mean, the mask will be damp, but it will be stopped. But it will not be anything like absolute protection. It's not like putting a bag over your head. Uh, (laughs) putting a plastic bag over your head which would be obviously fatal but uh, you know you'll see people in the news dressed in in biosafety suits uh, which include a full uh, head uh, covering and that full head covering is protective for the individual you know the air that goes through that is pulled in and HEPA filtered Mm. and the HEPA filter again will, will eliminate the small particles Gotcha. Good. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is Professor Michael Buckmeyer from UCI School of Medicine. He's particularly interested in emerging viral infections and their structure and also works in the area of antiviral drug design. Doctor, what about we have private companies and the government trying to support coming up with some type of drug that will either help with the symptoms or cure. Are you encouraged or is it just way too early to tell? Well, right now, most of the effort is in repurposing drugs, drugs that were designed for some other purpose Mm -hmm. and and trying to repurpose those drugs. For example, the major drug that people are talking about now is this remdesivir. I think remdesivir. Remdesivir, Remdesivir, yeah. And that was designed for Ebola infection. Mm -hmm. So the application of it in coronaviruses is not a direct application of the original development, but it does seem to inhibit viral ribonucleic acid polymerases. And so if it has an effect on Ebola, it may have an effect on on others as well, because there is conservation in those structures. However, that has to be proven. 
and it has to be at a level which is not toxic to the individual. It doesn't do any good to clear the virus but kill the patient. That's not acceptable. Uh, if you look at some of the others, you know, these inhibitors that are designed for arthritis, for example, uh, you know, chloroquine and, and some of the inhibitors of microtubule function have a very narrow window of effectiveness before they become too toxic for individuals. If you take those in excess, you could cause serious damage, including kidney failure. So it's very complicated to identify a new drug. It's even more complicated to design a drug specifically for an agent and to deliver that in large, large amounts because the, the testing alone will take you, in normal cases, would take you several years, but even in an emergency case will take at least a year. Vaccines would be a better way to go. You could vaccinate individuals and then hope for long-term immunity, but that will take at least a year and a half to develop as well. So, you know, there are a lot of promises that are being made. I think you have to realize that every biotech company is responsible to their investors. So the investors like to hear positive news, and, and that's what pumps up stock prices uh, and the value of a company. Until that's proven, I think that that can be transient. And when you say transient, it's to be determined whether it's, it has value or not? Is that what you're saying? I think, I think it, it not only is to be determined, the increase in value will depend on the success, the ultimate success or, or failure of the drug. And I've been involved in a couple of these just on a consulting basis over the past uh, 30 years. And we've had drugs that were very successful in vitro, that were very good, uh, showed excellent specific inhibition. But when you put them into an animal model, the problem is that they don't necessarily enter the tissue easily. So it's particularly hard with drugs that go into the CNS, to the brain. Uh, crossing the blood-brain barrier is a challenge. And many of the drugs fell short at that level. Going to the lung and not damaging the lung is another significant challenge, I think, for a drug company. There's no guarantee that it's going to work, but we have to try it and eventually something will come out of it. Gotcha. But antiviral and, drugs have not been that easy for, to develop for RNA viruses. And the reason for that is RNA viruses are rather unique. And one significant factor is, of course, that RNA viruses mutate very rapidly. Mm. And we're already seeing it with this virus. Really? We're already seeing variation in the, in the genomic composition of the virus and, and variation in severity of infections. And so we worry that the virus is changing it right in front of us. Wow. It can be overwhelming, I think. It's, you know, what we call in virology a moving target. You know how difficult it is to hit a moving target, you know, in, in sports. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's even more difficult because you don't have a readout on the uh, virus. One of the things that I would emphasize is that it is important to test. Why is it important to test? You know, we've been told that testing is not essential. Testing is essential. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's essential is because that's how you determine what's going on in the epidemic. You know, when you have a group of people who breaks out, for example, in the nursing home in Texas, is that the same virus that broke out in the nursing home in Seattle uh, or Kirkland, Washington, you know, where 34 people died? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so you have... You have to do the detective work because if it's a different virus, functionally a different virus, uh, but still in the same family, you know, that's a little different response. And so it becomes a, a challenge to really correlate all that data so that you have a, a response that makes any sense in the, mm. in the long term.
Mm. So testing so, is important, mm. and and sequencing is important. And sequencing sequencing is important because you can watch the movement of different types of virus in terms of the genetic type of virus as they move around the world. The genetic type of virus. Does that just mean the evolution of the virus, or the evolution of the evolution of the virus? Yeah. So the virus gets into humans, but it doesn't remain. You know, it's not SARS virus from November 2019 anymore. It's it's SARS virus of today and tomorrow. Mm, wow. Uh, and it is moving, and it is moving rather quickly. So it's important to understand what those changes are, and those changes can be either positive for the human, or they can be negative. And by positive, I would say if a virus becomes less virulent in a human, you may see it evolve into just a, a nasty kind of cold uh, and and something that's inconvenient. On the other hand, if it's a negative change, it will become more virulent, and and you'll see death tolls go up. One of the ways that we look for that is we look for clusters of disease and clusters that break out really in isolation are very interesting. There was a report this week about three members of the same family died in Ohio uh, following COVID infection. And what we want to know there is, did they die because that virus was uniquely virulent or did they die because there was some underlying condition or some epiphenomenon in the family that caused all three of them to have a similar susceptibility. We can't necessarily say it was that the virus was more virulent if all three people, for example, had a gene that made them more susceptible. Mm-hmm. And these are the important things to sort out so we understand what the susceptibility and, and virulence factors are. You've heard that pre-existing conditions are an important factor. And what are those pre-existing conditions? Think about what's important in influenza. Obesity, uh, diabetes, Pulmonary disease like COPD, smoking, vaping are all factors that will make someone more susceptible to a respiratory disease. In addition to that, you have diabetes. When the virus goes into the whole body, kidney failure, any pre-existing kidney conditions, you know, things like this will become important as well. So if you have two or three underlying conditions, you're more susceptible at any age than you would be if you had no pre-existing conditions. Thank you for that. It, you know, when you talk about you know testing, 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 uh, when we see these numbers of COVID nineteen, those are only those people have been tested, right? So we we really don't know how much the disease is spread until everybody's tested. Well, you know, think of it this way: if you have a disease that is in the community and you have tested 10% of the people who, are, who have presented with that disease in the physician's office, and you see uh, 90% of the people with the same uh, spectrum of, of symptoms, then I think the, uh, what you're seeing reported is the total number. It's a reportable disease, so it's the total number. You, we, haven't, we certainly haven't uh, tested everyone. That would be nice, but we don't have sufficient capacity right now to do that. There were early problems in testing in the United States because we had tests that were not designed appropriately. They were designed in a more general sense to pick up any coronavirus infection. And with that, I will say that there are other coronavirus infections that cause upper respiratory disease but don't necessarily kill you. And those are more common cold-like diseases. And so you have a test that will detect 
a spectrum of coronaviruses rather than a specific coronavirus. And so those tests were not accurate uh, in terms of detecting this because this is a brand new virus. This is not something that the test was designed to pick up. And so it took some time to restructure those specific tests so that you could definitely could identify the new virus. That's part of the problem of predicting the future. But it's also a problem of diminishing resources. Remember that about half of CDC's budget was cut as well. And so you, you don't have the expertise, you don't have the, the seasoned professionals in those positions making the decisions, and you have about half of the personnel and half of the supply resources to, to work with. And so we're, we're in a very vulnerable position. Compare that with what happened in Korea. Korea did uh, something like 140,000 cases in a, in a week, 140,000 tests. So they had a very good idea you know, what was going on in the community, what the virus looked like, uh, what the spread of it was, where it came from. Uh, and the spread from the church in Seoul uh, was a major factor. That most of the infections in Korea were traceable back to that incident in the church where one, one or two people came into the church with the infection and spread the infection. So that's why it's relevant when you look at what happened the, uh, uh, this week when uh, a televangelist was arrested, and not a televangelist, an evangelist of a megachurch uh, in the South was arrested uh, because he had exposed a thousand people mm-hmm. in his church uh, against the orders of, of public health and police officials. And the reason you, you have to, to crack down on that is because of the danger of spreading it to more people. It's not only a danger to the people, it's a huge stressor on the economy, as you're seeing. It's just uh, the lowest the economy has been since I'm not sure when. It's, uh, yeah. it's amazing. Are the numbers from China, do you feel like that they're reliable? I have to accept the numbers at face value. You know, we have to consider the source and we have to assume that, that there's no intent to fool us. Uh, what would someone gain by fooling us? You know, only some kind of national prestige. And, and that to me is not a factor here. I mean, it may be going on, but, you know, we have no idea, uh, you know, without some verification, whether those numbers are completely accurate or not. I've been amazed when you look at these numbers online, how China, it went to about 81,000 people and it literally has just stayed there now for weeks on weeks. I just kept looking at it and amazing, like, how has that not moved at all? Well, remember that the quarantine had an amazing effect. I don't think we have the kind of uh, uh, national uh, authority here to, to make that work. If we did it, you know, I think we would trigger uh, major unrest. Uh, but in China, they were able to essentially restrict the movement of something like 50 million people. But when they declared the quarantine, this is interesting as well, there were some 10 million people in Wuhan City And by the time that quarantine was declared, something like 7 million of those people had already left the city. So they had already begun to disperse in other parts of China. And so if any of those people were infected, again, they would take the virus with them. And that may account for the virus popping up in other areas. One of the most affected areas in the first SARS epidemic was Mongolia. Now, why Mongolia? Well, apparently because there was a lot of migration from Guangzhou city in the south to Beijing, and there's a lot of exchange between Beijing and Mongolia. You know, it's just a matter of the normal travel in China. 
The other similarity is that in the first SARS epidemic, one of the early events in the spread of the epidemic was the Chinese New Year. And the tradition in the Chinese New Year is that you go back to your home, your ancestral home, or where you grew up, essentially, and you celebrate New Year's with your family. And what happened uh, there is that both of these epidemics hit during that New Year period in January. Mm-hmm. And so that's when you have the dispersal of the virus throughout China. And in the case of modern Chinese immigration, we have many people in the United States who went back to China for Chinese New Year. And so you have transcontinental travel as well. And that probably happened also in Europe. Why in Italy? Why did Italy pop up so early? What's the connection there? because there are a tremendous number of tourists who go back and forth, apparently, between Italy and China. And so you have the spread of virus uh, in that way as well. So you can track these uh, almost by looking at the air routes. Gotcha. Excuse me one more time, Professor. For those of you who have just joined us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is UCI Conversations. And we're speaking with Professor Michael Buckmeyer, who two months ago uh, on February 10th, 2020, was part of a campus panel on the coronavirus, which you can access at YouTube by searching UCI 2019 novel coronavirus current state of knowledge. It was a very good panel discussion on the, the state of affairs that, that um, unfortunately has just exploded since then. Professor, what about recovery from this disease, but then the possible uh, reinfection? Can you address that? Yeah, that's been widely reported. And there are some possible rational explanations for it. Uh, One is that what we're looking at may be a failure to completely clear in the first place. That could happen if someone had, for example, a defective immune response. Another possibility is that what we're looking at is the natural progression of this disease to go from respiratory to gastrointestinal infection. Mm. Uh, And what we found, again, relating it back to to the first SARS epidemic, was we found that a number of patients who had been released from the hospital who were asymptomatic contained to secrete or excrete virus in their feces or viral RNA in their feces for a long period of time. So the first question I would have is, are they really being reinfected or are they just continuing to excrete virus? And the second thing that I would ask is whether or not that it's really detected by an RNA test. It's not detected by infectivity, but I would want to know whether that virus is infected. Because if it's just viral RNA being excreted, then it's not infectious. But if it's viral RNA that is infectious, that's a significant risk for further uh, spread of virus. So, I mean, there's a couple of things that are missing from that information that we really don't have access to yet. And eventually we will, but not yet. Uh, And so it's important to test and it's important to test after the fact and to uh, go ahead and track uh, with fecal specimens and with with throat swabs and and, uh, sputum swabs uh, and, and just to make sure that we know what's going on in that patient and on equivalent patients. There is also an indication that there are a number of asymptomatic cases, and that's been repeated. Initially, it was denied, and then it was repeated by the uh, CDC, and now they're claiming that up to 25% may have infection that's a silent infection, if you will. That's more complicated than just yes or no. If you think about an individual patient, first of all, a patient will have a range of symptoms from almost asymptomatic in very young people 
to fatal in, in older adults. If you look at that, you've got to qualify that by age group, and you've got to look at when the most probable time of infection is and when they become symptomatic, because there's always a lag between infection and symptomatic phase of disease. And during that time, we've learned from diseases like measles that you can be infectious. So uh, with measles, the period is about 10 days between infection and the first symptoms that identify measles. And so we really don't have that data on COVID patients. We don't know when you're infected because the infection may be very subtle. It may be that you've, you've come too close to somebody who sneezed or that you grabbed a handle on a shopping cart and the shopping cart may be contaminated. And, and if you rub your face or your nose or whatever, you may spread the infection that way. So it's a very, very subtle but highly efficient virus uh, to spread. And so that complicates the observation of an asymptomatic versus a presymptomatic carrier. Wow. Professor, you've mentioned viral RNA a couple of times. Can you distinguish, you know, I, I think the general public like myself, you know, okay, RNA, I've heard of it, DNA, I've heard of it. Can you give us a short definition of what you're talking about when you say viral RNA? Sure. So DNA is the genetic code for large animals, for bacteria, for other agents. In the viral world, we have viruses that have DNA genomes and that have RNA genomes. And a DNA genome can be a single-stranded DNA or a double-stranded DNA. And you have many viruses in, in each category. And then we also have RNA viruses. And RNA viruses can be single-stranded RNA or double-stranded RNA. In the case of this coronavirus, it's a single-stranded RNA. You can also have RNAs that are the same uh, code, if you will, as a messenger RNA, which means that you can read directly to make a protein. And we also have uh, viruses that are the opposite. And we call those, the ones that have a, a genetic code that can be read directly, we call those positive strand viruses. And the ones that don't, uh, we call those negative strand viruses. So if you categorize these, a coronavirus is in the positive strand, single-stranded RNA virus group. A, uh, Ebola virus is in the negative strand, single-stranded RNA virus group. So you have major, major pathogens in both cases. Uh, so when we do an assay, what we're looking for is we're looking for the sequence of a coronavirus. But each of, these, each of these different categories of RNA virus carries a different ability to, uh, to mutate, to evolve. Uh, and think about that in terms of the speed of, the, of these mutations. Uh, the speed of mutation in a single-stranded RNA virus is very rapid. Uh, in a double-stranded virus, it can also be very rapid, maybe not quite as rapid, but it can be quite rapid, and you get mutation during the course of an infection. Mutation occurs because the virus grows more efficiently in one tissue or one host versus another. It's pure natural selection. So if you have a virus that has a defect in it and won't grow in a host, that's the end of the line for that virus. Uh, if a patient dies, that's the end of the line for that virus. They will spread no more once a patient dies because the virus will degrade with the individual. On the other hand, if a person remains infected for a long period of time, uh, whether it's detectable or not detectable, they will continue to shed virus for a long period of time. And so that virus is propagated longer. 
And so the natural selection here is really survival of the strain that replicates the longest and is excreted at the highest level. And so those are factors that are chosen for. Factors that are chosen against are a fatal infection, very early fatal infection, for example, which would remove that viral genome from the, from the gene pool. So it's basically looking at an RNA, which consists of RNA that is homologous with what we know to be the SARS-CoV-2. And so that virus is very important to identify. And as you track the virus, you need to know what the changes are in the genome because you want to know how the virus is adapting, how it's changing. So I know my genetic DNA. Do I have RNA in me naturally? Like, is that just part of my physical being? I have RNA also, or does it, does all RNA come from outside sources? No, no, no. no. RNA is part of the normal genetic code. So DNA is, you look at it as DNA is the long-term storage from DNA you would read a sequence on one strand or the other of the DNA to produce an RNA. And the RNA is the nucleic acid template for a protein. So you make DNA encodes RNA encodes protein. And the first part is called transcription. And the second part is called translation. So transcription is the synthesis of an RNA messenger, messenger RNA from the genetic code of the DNA. Uh, And that's controlled by a number of complex mechanisms within the the gene code. And then the RNA is used as a template uh, for the the protein. Uh, The template requires reading of triplets of nucleotides to read the amino acid code of a protein. And that's the translation. So it's it's like a language. It is a language. It's it a definitely language. it okay. definitely is. It's it's yeah. mind I felt I feel like I need to sign up for a class. You know, thank you for giving us just a peek that uh, more detailed area on your analysis now of what's being done. Are we taking the necessary steps? Just give us your comments on that. I think that our medical community has been taking exactly the right steps against enormous odds because of the delays in in sampling, the delays in in funding, and the political squabbling that's gone on. You can see it in the news conferences. Dr. Fauci is one of the most respected scientists in the world. Uh, He served, uh, I think, six presidents, starting with Reagan, and uh, uh, he's apolitical, really. Uh, He said the other day in an interview that he takes no sides in politics, that his only agenda is helping people prevent death or disease. And so he's really uh, an incredibly dedicated person. He's almost 80 years old, and he's still director of the uh, National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease. And he's turned down the opportunity to be director of the NIH many times. Mm. Uh, So we have the best leadership we could possibly have. Mm -hmm. When the leadership recommends something, the scientific leadership recommends something, and then we go a different direction. That's not helpful. We've seen those positions, you know, that have been taken reversed many times during the course of this epidemic. Uh, Here it is April, and the virus hasn't disappeared, has it? Professor, when we don't have a crisis, what is your lab doing? Are you looking at a specific area, or is it broad range? Can you just describe that briefly? Yeah, work that we've done, you know, since I've been here. I've been here 12 years now. 
Okay. Uh, and the work that we've done since we've been here has focused largely on two groups of viruses. One is a negative stranded RNA virus uh, called the arenaviruses, and that includes viruses that are used in experimental modeling. For example, lymphocytic meningitis virus is used in immunology, and it's a, it's a really a, what we call a prototype virus for the group. Other, the disease that would be associated with this would be something like Lassa fever. And Lassa fever is a disease that strikes in uh, West Africa and involves probably a half million people a year. But you rarely hear about it unless there's an epidemic. It hits the sub-equatorial belt or the equatorial belt between Guinea and Nigeria and into Central, America, the Central African Republic. So that's one virus, and the other is the coronaviruses. We've published on both groups of viruses in the last time period, in the last 10 years, certainly. And I'm continuing to work with uh, Dr. Ilham Masoudi, who joined us almost three years ago, and is an expert on Ebola virus, uh, and on dengue virus, and on Zika virus, uh, and on the maternal uh, fetal interface in virology, because we know that some viruses can spread to... Uh, uh, can spread to individuals uh, during pregnancy, uh, to the fetus. Uh, and in other cases, uh, we uh, also work on the way viruses work, uh, how they function, because that's the key to understanding how to counter them. So in the case of the coronaviruses, we've looked at how the coronavirus takes over the machinery that is necessary to form the organelles inside the body, uh, inside the cell, in order to uh, have normal cell biology function. And one of the things that viruses do is they'll take over that machinery and they'll redirect it so it's spending all of its time and energy on, on making viral components. And that's what we've done with the coronavirus and with both SARS virus and with other less virulent viruses. So are you describing how to combat the virus? Is that what you're talking about? We're describing even more fundamental aspects of the virus than that. We're describing how things work in the virus and trying to provide detail that could be used, certainly, to combat the virus. We have studied immune responses to these viruses. We've studied antiviral drugs. We've studied you know, a number of different approaches to counter these viruses. And that information is published. And anyone who is interested in going into drug development probably would be wise to read that along with substantial literature from other people as well. You know, it's, it, it's not just a single paper that solves science. Science truly does build on the shoulders of people that have gone before you. It's a community effort. Professor, you know, as my kids have grown up, I always knew that there were things that they would get in amoxicillin, you know, they would get antibiotics, but I always heard that there's nothing you can take for a virus. Is that just a generalized statement, or it sounds like we're trying to find things, but... Um, well, you know, there's some truth to that, but that's, that's an oversimplification. Okay. For example, a herpes virus. If you have a herpes virus infection, there are a number of antiherpetic drugs that can be given. Uh, and if, for example, in shingles. Shingles is a, a disease that follows in the adult much later if you've had chickenpox as a child. And so you break out large lesions on your, on your back or on your trunk, usually sometimes up into your face. And that's because of the way the virus persists in the body. But mm. there are drugs that you can take that will suppress that viral infection and will make it less painful, less severe. Mm. It doesn't necessarily get rid of the infection uh, because this virus has evolved to be latent in your neurons. But 
you certainly can give it to relieve pain. If you have influenza, there are at least two drugs that are commonly used for influenza, and one is called Tamiflu. That's a drug that provides a, a receptor antagonist, basically, for for the virus so that you reduce the amount of replication of the virus in the upper respiratory tract. You can also be vaccinated for flu and you can be vaccinated every year. You should be vaccinated every year. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you should be vaccinated for measles and and for other diseases as well. But we don't necessarily have a specific drug for each virus, but we do have a substantial number. So it's important to get a diagnosis and if it's appropriate to have the antiviral drug available. Many of these infections will resolve normally in a normal individual. And by normal, I mean with a fully functioning immune system. And one of the best ways to be vaccinated is to have the infection. So think about if you're vaccinated as a child and you've been vaccinated for measles or for polio or for chickenpox, you're going to be exposed to those infections throughout your life. You know, you're, the, the world isn't sterile. Mm-hmm. You go to the grocery store, you go to, uh, to play school, preschool, or, or anything like this, you may be exposed to a viral infection, and that viral infection will serve as a booster of your immune response. So you might feel very off-kilter for a day or two, mm-hmm. but you'll usually recover, and you may never know whether you were infected by a virus or not. Mm-hmm. And that will boost your immune response. And one way mm-hmm. to look at that is if you were sampling it, if you sampled blood and you measured the antibody levels in an individual. And you'll find that if you're reinfected with a virus, that your antibody levels will jump up, they'll go higher. That's called the recall effect, the boosting effect of an infectious disease. So there are some specific treatments, but not enough. We can't cover everything. Well, Professor Buckmeyer, thank you so much for your detailed expertise analysis today. You've really been insightful and I think helpful for us going forward and, 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 and helping our understanding. So thank you very much. You're welcome. All right. Thank you again to Dr. Michael Buckmeyer, UCI professor in the Department of Molecular Biology and Biochemistry in the School of Medicine. His expert insights into SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, commonly referred to as the coronavirus, were outstanding and his availability was very much appreciated during this very busy time. If you'd like to hear this program again or want to refer it to a friend, simply go to my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. It's phonetic, bossenmeyer.com, B as in Bravo, O-S-S as in Sierra, E-N as in November, M as in Mike, E-Y as in Yankee, E-R, bossenmeyer.com. Also, if you have any comments, requests, or questions about this program, I can always be reached at my email at kboss, K-B-O-S-S, at KUCI.org. Due to these unprecedented times, every week my show will now be focused on interviewing UCI experts looking at COVID-19 and its ramifications moving forward. Under that guideline in the upcoming weeks, I plan to interview an economist, pandemic expert Dr. Andrew Neumer again, and a nurse researcher who studies the effects of the media on our lives when we watch too much media. So stay tuned. You've been listening to UCI Conversations in the new spring quarter 2020, where every Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m., we explore another corner of UCI with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. 
and you are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. So now listen up and do not forget, keep your social distance, wear a mask, wash your hands, and be a leader, not a defeater. We are in this together, and we will win it together. So have a great night. So long, everybody.